and it, and uh, it's so good to be with you and to be here and have opportunity to share the word with you. I appreciate your pastor. He operates as a missional zone leader for us. You may not know exactly how that works, but our district is divided into 12 missional zones, and uh, each of those missional zones has a leader, and your pastor operates as a missional zone leader, assisting me and helping uh, some of the smaller churches especially with some of their uh, organizational issues, and, and also when I can't get somewhere quickly enough, he assists, and I'm so grateful for that. And so it's my privilege to kind of stand in him, in for him during his vacation time. I'm glad he had opportunity to be away and, and to uh, have some family time, and so it's my privilege to be with you. Last year, just about district assembly time, Trent, who is a Facebook friend of mine, posted on his Facebook. I'm not sure if he remembered that I was a Facebook friend, but he posted that he was lamenting the fact that, uh, that the opening game of the Mariners at home and district assembly were happening on the same night. And uh, it seemed to me that perhaps he was vacillating, wondering which place he should be. And so somebody said, somebody said well, you know, the Mariners aren't, doing, aren't going to be doing that well anyway, you know how they are. And, uh, and he said, he said, oh no, they look good this year. They've been doing well in, well in spring training. I think they're going to be doing great this year. To which I added, I just put underneath that, hope springs eternal. <laughs> and then I said, and, and by, the way, by the way, Trent, district assembly is way more exciting than a Mariners game. <clears throat> and that's a true statement. The, term, the, the little phrase, hope springs eternal, that sometimes we use, I don't know if you have ever used it, but hope springs eternal usually gets used. It's, it's actually a, a, a line from a poem by a British poet over 100 years old, but, but we use the line when someone says, you know, they say, this is going to work, and you go, hope springs eternal, which really means, yeah, lots of luck with that. You know, it really means I don't think that's going to work at all. I think you're going to have some really difficulty making that happen. But I titled the message this morning, Hope Springs Eternal, because for those of us who are believers in Jesus, hope always does spring eternal. We're the people of the resurrection. Sometimes we forget when we gather every Sunday that we really gather, well, we gather under the sign of the cross, and I love the, the uh, decoration with pallets that's part of your summer uh, uh, preaching theme, I guess, is is what it's going to be part of, but uh, I love the decorations. I, I love the cross made out of rugged wood. We often think of ourselves as being people who, who live under the sign of the cross, Jesus who died for us. But remember, the cross is validated by the resurrection. In fact, one theologian said what the, what the, uh, what the virgin birth is to the incarnation, the empty tomb is to the resurrection, proof that Jesus lived, he died, He's risen again. So we are the people of great hope. We are the people who gather every Sunday, and we remind ourselves Sunday after Sunday that he is risen. He's risen indeed. I know we say that on Easter, but we are, we are the people who believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I will tell you that the, if you ever get away from that concept or idea in your Christian walk, pretty soon it becomes a drudge. But we are the people of hope. We are the people who share the hope of Christ, the hope of the world. Have you ever noticed that some passages of Scripture, when you read them, are difficult to understand? You know, there, there are a couple passages in the Old Testament that as a pastor, when someone comes up and says to me, I have a question about something in the Bible, I can always point to five or six places 
where I know they're going to ask me, and my answer a lot of, when I was a young pastor, I always tried to answer. As an older pastor, I always said, you know, that's the one I'm going to have to ask Jesus when I get to heaven. I don't quite understand exactly what that passage of Scripture means. You have any passages like that that you've read? You go, wow, I don't understand that one. But Mark Twain said, it's not what I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me. Think about that one for a minute. It's not what I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me. Sometimes it's the things that I clearly understand from Scripture that are the things that bother me. And this morning, the passage of Scripture that I want to read to you is, is a passage that needs no explanation. Now you're thinking, oh, well, then he's going to read it to us and not explain it. No, no, I'm here, and, and you're here, and I figured as long as we're all here, I may as well try to explain it. But as I read it, you'll discover that it really needs no explanation. It's one of those places in Scripture where you read it and you go, yep, I get what that means, and let me show you what I mean. It's, it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. 1 Peter 3, verse 8, and we'll, we'll use this passage as our lesson this morning to take home with us something from God's Word that'll help us walk as people of the resurrection, people of hope. Here's how it goes. Finally, all of you, finally all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Anybody struggling so far, understanding? Pretty clear, isn't it? For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. I love that. You must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do what's good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's a pretty clear passage. And I suppose if we wanted to, we could take the rest of the day and into the evening, taking it little piece by little piece, word by word, line by line, verse by verse, and spend the rest of today unpacking the practical implications of this passage of Scripture for us. So let's do that. <laughs> oh, all right. Someone said to me, are you ever bored in church? I said, no, I'm talking. <laughs> I'm enamored with the sound of my own voice. I'm thinking you're loving it just as much as me. I just want to take four things from this passage of Scripture then in the time we have set aside for looking in God's Word this morning. I want to have four things, so if you're one of those people who likes to jot things down and take them home, there, there should be four things. Someone, after, after I preached this message, once said, you only said three. And I said, well, I said all four, I just didn't mention it. So if, if you feel free to jump up and hold up your hand and say, wait a minute, I missed one. I'm all good with that. I used to be a youth pastor, and in order to, in order to bother me, you have to kind of roller skate on the ceiling. So four things. 
One, don't fear what they fear. Don't be afraid. Don't live your life in fear. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Don't be afraid of them. So who are they and what are they afraid of? You know, there's, there's some studies that have been done recently, and I think that this has been a, a topic of discussion for a long time, but the internet gives us the ability to search out things. So I just, in, pre- in preparation for this message, typed in, what, are, what do people fear? And, and just because I'm an old youth pastor and I'm used to audience participation, let me see if I can get you to participate with me for a little bit. What are people afraid of? Anybody want to take an take a opportunity to jump into this conversation? People are afraid of? Snakes. Yeah, people are afraid of snakes. It's true people are afraid of snakes. But let me tell you about that. Snakes are good. They, they kill all the rodents and stuff. And only a few of them are poisonous. So it's all the bad snakes that are giving the good snakes a bad reputation. But people are afraid of snakes. You see a snake, you think, no. I, saw, I, was in, I was in Belize and I saw this beautiful little snake. It was just a little bitty snake and I almost stepped on it with my sandals. It, it, it had little bands of color around it. And the missionary I was with grabbed me and pulled me back and said, that's a coral snake. That's one of the most dangerous poisonous snakes in all the world. But he's so cute. Who can tell? That's why you're afraid of snakes. Who can tell? So people afraid of snakes. What, are they all, what else are people afraid of? People are afraid of heights. And actually, it's not heights you're afraid of. It's falling or landing. That's kind of the real issue. Yeah, people are afraid they're going to fall. People are afraid of pollution. Yeah. Did... People are afraid of the future. Oh, yeah, the monster under the bed. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know what it's going to be like for me. I don't know where things are going. People fear. People fear the unknown. Sometimes, have you ever noticed, sometimes people will stay in one miserable situation because they're afraid, this is, I know this is miserable, but if I try to get out of this situation, tomorrow may be more miserable. So sometimes we stay stuck and frozen because of our fear of what might happen in the future. Pe- people are afraid of death. People are afraid to die. People are afraid... Uh, of, of, of dying and not knowing where, where, what that will be or if it will be painful. People are afraid of losing their beauty as they age. I've been staying up nights worrying about that myself. <laughs> my, hair, uh, my hair started to fall out in college and my barber said to me, do you want to keep your hair? And I said, he said, your hair's starting to fall out. And he said, do you want to keep your hair? I said, yes. He said, get a plastic bag. But we can be afraid of losing our beauty. And the truth is that our culture spends a great deal of time being afraid of how we might be appearing to others. Time and money we spend on trying to put lotions and do all kinds of things. Gravity is going to get you. It's going to win. We're going to age. People are afraid of losing their beauty. People are afraid of speaking publicly. In fact, many studies say people are more afraid of speaking publicly than they are of dying, which means they would really rather be the guest of honor at the funeral than the one giving the eulogy. (laughs) We're afraid of all kinds of things, and we live in a culture of fear. I have neighbors in a a community that's pretty safe. They're so afraid that they won't even let their children ride their bicycles except for right in front of the house. They won't let them get out of their sight for fear something will happen to them if they get away. We live in a culture of fear. 
And the fear that Peter is talking about when he writes to us in this is not only the, the common fears of man that he says, we're the people of the resurrection, don't live in fear, don't live your life in fear, don't be afraid. But he's also saying, don't be afraid of what they can do to you because of your faith in Christ. Do you ever kind of fearfully ever admit that you're a follower of Jesus? What did Peter know about that? What did he know about that? Well, there was that incident on the night that Jesus was arrested. Remember how, cur- how courageous he was in the garden? He took his sword and he whoosh, off the ear of Malchus, the high priest, servant, and uh, Jesus put it back on. And Peter ran, but he didn't run very far. Peter was a brave man. He didn't run very far. He ran and then he turned and he followed the procession that had arrested Jesus and he followed them right into the courtyard where Jesus was being tried. And somewhere in the middle of the night as Jesus was being abused, as Jesus was being treated so brutally, Peter got afraid. And Peter denied that he knew Jesus at all. Three times someone said to him, aren't you from Galilee? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter, Peter said, no, I, I, no, I, no, the accent, the beard, no, I just, no, coincidence. I don't know him. Then finally, scripture says that he cursed God and said, I never met the man. I don't know the man. And then you know what happened? The rooster crows. And the prophecy that Jesus had said the day before, before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you know me sunk in, and Peter ran and wept bitter tears. Peter knew what it was like to be afraid and have his fear overwhelm his faith. Do you ever have your fear overwhelm your faith? In our culture, um, you probably could lose a little bit by acknowledging your follower, your follower of Jesus. You sometimes can be socially ostracized. You've had that happen, I'm sure, where someone finds out you're a follower of Jesus and and they, you know, they don't want to hear it, and they just step away from you. Or perhaps you have lost an opportunity in employment where, where you were passed over for a promotion or, or someone didn't invite you to the social function at work because you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've even lost a job because of being a follower of Jesus. But in our culture, most of those circumstances that happen to you for being brave about your being a follower of Jesus are are mostly social things, maybe some economic issues. In November, I flew into Burkina Faso, which is in in central West Africa. Burkina Faso is a place that's really being divided right now because of the clash of Christianity and Islam. When I I looked at, at where I was going to be flying into, into Ouagadagou, I looked it up from our State Department to see whether or not it was safe to travel there, and, and uh, the State Department said, don't go unless you have good reason. You know, it's not a, not a good place to vacation for you. Uh, so I had good reason. So I flew into a Ouagadagou. We were carrying two Jesus Film pack, backpacks. I don't know if you've seen the Jesus Film. I'm sure you have. If you've been around for a while, you know that the Campus Crusade turned the, the story of Jesus Christ in, into the Gospel of Luke, in a, into, a, into a video narrative of his life, of the life of Jesus, word for word from the Gospel of Luke. It's been translated into um, hundreds of languages around the world, and, and the Church of the Nazarene partners with Campus Crusade, and we have Jesus film teams that take the film out, set it up in a village, and show the Jesus film in a village, and then we start a church in that village. 
and it's been a very effective thing. It's not such an effective film in, in, in developed countries because it's kind of a B-grade movie, and so it doesn't play well in America, so it doesn't work well to start a church here, but in West Africa, in a village where there are no movies, you come in and you show the movie. That they, see, they see and hear Jesus in their own language. It's a powerful tool that's used to develop and start churches, and we were carrying two pack, backpacks, Truth is, Americans flying into that particular part of the world right now with a lot of electronic equipment can raise eyebrows. So as the plane was landing in Ouagadougou, I was praying, Lord, help us to just easily get this equipment through customs. It's not that I was fearful that someone would really put me in jail because I wasn't doing anything illegal, but they could easily seize the equipment and they could hold it, or they could charge duty on it that would be incredibly expensive for the church. And so I was praying as we went in, Lord, help us to just easily get this through customs. Two, two backpacks, each worth $5,000, that, compla- that contain complete everything you'd need, a screen, a projector, an a, a audio system, lighting system, everything you need to show the Jesus film, all of it in one little backpack. Amazing what's been done with it. It used to take a truck to get that equipment in. And we landed, and, and everybody's luggage arrived except for ours. Our luggage didn't arrive, and the next day when we went to pick it up, the customs agents weren't working, no plane was coming in, they didn't care about it at all, and we just took it away, and I said, thank you, Jesus. I met with uh, our, 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 our pastor and district superintendent in Burkina Faso that night when we first landed. We got there about 8 o'clock, and by the time we finished waiting for our luggage, it was about 11.30 before we actually got to bed. I met Joseph, who's our district superintendent in Burkina Faso, and, and one of our pastors, his name's Michelle. Michelle stands about 4'11", and, uh, and he was waiting on us from the moment we walked in the door. He was just trying to figure out what we needed and get it to us. He was sure we needed to eat. I was sure we didn't, but we ate because Michelle was sure we needed to eat, and, and we finally got to bed after midnight. Um, Michelle... Michelle, uh, the next day, was up early before we were making breakfast, and finally I said, Michelle, sit down, sit down. Finally, by the end of that day, I got Michelle to sit down and and heard his story. He's the father of five children. He's a pastor of ours in Burkina Faso, and and one of the backpacks we've been carrying in was for Michelle. Michelle had been taking and riding his 125 motorcycle north out of Burkina Faso into Mali, I don't know if you've been watching Mali on the news, but Mali is a hotbed of uh, terrorist activity. The French actually kind of have supervision of parts of Mali, and, and one of their refineries was overrun, and, and some Americans were killed, some French were killed. The, the week before we went, there were two uh, French journalists that had been killed by, by extremists in, in Mali. When I look at Mali on the, on, the, on the State Department's instructions on where to travel, they say, don't go to Mali under any circumstances. You sh- there's no reason for you to go to Mali. You just are, you're, just, you're just a sitting duck if you do. In fact, the State Department told me not to travel 25 miles north of Ouagadougou. But here's, here's Michelle, and he has taken the Jesus film into Mali. And, and I heard two reports. I don't know which one is accurate, but he, both of them are amazing. The lowest report I heard was that he had started 26 churches in villages in Mali. The highest report that I heard that he had started 46. One, one person told me that uh, Michelle had carried the Jesus film north into Mali into a place where it's very dangerous for him to go as a Christian believer. And obviously, if you go into a village and you turn on bright lights and, and a sound system late at night, you can't really hide yourself well. 
And, uh, and I heard that one night Molly, that, that Michelle had taken the film in, the crowd had gathered to see the film, and the projection system didn't work. So because of his stature, um, Michelle stood up on the table and turned on the light and the sound system, and he just told the story of Jesus. Just told them about Jesus and all that he had done. I was so impressed with all that Michelle had been done, I, I just kind of hung around him real close, hoping that some of his courage would rub off on me. Before we left, I said, Michelle, aren't you afraid? And he said, no, no, I'm not afraid. Folks, we've lost people just like Michelle in, West, in East Africa to, uh, to terrorists who've shown the Jesus film and, and given their life for it. I said, Michelle, aren't you afraid? He said, no, I'm not afraid. Jesus goes with me. And then he smiled and he said, and I make friends with a police officer as soon as I get to town. <laughs> I was so impressed with his courage. Peter would say to us, in the middle of our faith, in the middle of a world that needs to hear this wonderful message of hope, first thing, don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. But they might kill you. They might. In, in Acts, you know the story where Peter gets miraculously released from jail and everybody's overwhelmed except for they were praying for his release and when he actually shows up, they go, he can't be here, he's in jail. Remember that story? Rhoda goes to the door and says, it's Peter. And they say, no, no, he's in jail while they're inside praying for his release. It's a great story of faith. I actually said that didn't mean for it to be funny. I guess it is kind of funny. But it is a great story of faith. Peter's released, the answer to their prayers. Do you know how that passage of Scripture starts in, in Acts chapter 12? It starts out by saying that, that James was put to death. James, the brother of John, was put to death. And then this wonderful story about the release of Peter. Can you lose your life? Can you lose your life for, uh, for standing for what you believe in Christ? You can. There are lots of places in the world. We've lost more people in the last century for standing up for their faith in Christ than in all of the rest of Christendom and world history combined. People who stand for Jesus. And Peter says, don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Don't be afraid of them or what they can do to you. One of the things we're afraid of is what other people think of us. Do you spend a lot of time worried about what other people think? Okay. Sometimes I worry about what other people think. I walk away after preaching and I go, well, I wonder if that was any good. I wonder what they think. Do you ever wonder about what people think? I love the old woman in the nursing home who said, what other people think about you is none of your business. Because we can become paralyzed by fear of others, can't we? And Peter would say, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of what they can do to you. Don't be afraid. Don't live your life in fear. In a culture that makes lots of money off of making you be afraid, we're the people of the resurrection, even if they kill us. Well, no, we'll live. He lives. Because he lives, we don't have to fear tomorrow. So first thing, don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Second thing, in your heart, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. In your heart, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, the antidote to fear, you could think, is courage or bravery. The antidote to being afraid or living in afraid, living afraid is the presence of Jesus in your life. The, the verse that we read uh, out of the text from John that was so beautifully read by somebody 
It's a voice from afar, you know, read it, um, beautifully read this morning. Jesus says, I won't leave you alone. I'll be with you. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you, and I will leave my peace with you. And that whole passage ends by saying, don't be afraid. The presence of Christ is the antidote to fear in our lives and in the culture. Live in the presence of Jesus, and you won't be afraid. I, I drive up and down the I-5 corridor all the time, and the uh, only thing I'm afraid of is that, my, that Neil might be right behind me flashing his lights at me. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just, as I travel up and down the I-5 corridor, I just try to sing in my car that the presence of Jesus would be with me as I go into board meetings and difficult situations and places where churches are having problems and difficulty, that the peace of Christ might reign in my heart and in theirs. It's the presence of Jesus that is the antidote to fear. This morning, the reason we sing the songs we sing, the reason we come and gather together in church is so that we will walk away knowing that because He lives, our lives are filled with the presence of Christ and we don't have to be afraid. Don't live your life in fear. The presence of Christ also becomes the referee in our hearts helping us know what we should do. Uh, not too long ago, I was having conflict with someone, and I, and I wrote them an email. I wrote them an email. And I said everything I wanted to say to them. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you write to someone an email, you say things you'd never say face-to-face? Have you ever noticed sometimes people put on Facebook things they'd never say face-to-face? Have you any idea how much damage is being done to the body of Christ by people on the internet with really loose typewriters? So I wrote this email. I was really upset with this person. I wrote them this email. And it was about this long. (laughs) Capital, 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 bold, bold, bold. And then I said, Lord Jesus, before I send this, um, is this all right? Lord Jesus, be, be, the, be the referee in my heart. Before I hit send, is this all right? And I reread it, and, and the Holy Spirit said, um, not bold, not bold, not capitalized, not capitalized. Delete, 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 delete. Delete, 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 delete. And the email that started this long became this long. And I hit send. And then I saw the person. And my email became effective at helping us resolve the conflict. A simple way that we make Jesus the Lord of our heart, the Lord of our lives. Peter says to us from his old age vantage point, says to us in the church, In your heart, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. It's the antidote to fear, and it's the protection of a fruitless life. It protects us from living a fruitless life when we let Jesus be Lord in our hearts. The third thing he says is, be ready to give a reason for this hope you have within you. So I guess the question this morning is, do you have this hope within you? Do you have this hope within you? Sometimes it's easy for us even to go, become in a pattern of being in church, a pattern of going to church, a pattern of talking like we're a believer, but we live our lives without hope. And Peter would say, be ready to have your life show this hope you have within you. 
Be ready in the conversation of your life and the way that you conduct your life and the way that you don't live in fear and the way that you set apart Christ as Lord. Be ready to give answer for the reason for the hope you have within you. Have you ever had someone obnoxiously share the gospel with you? Sometimes the way that we share the gospel doesn't convey hope. And so Peter would say to us, have this hope. There are lots of things that can steal your hope. There are lots of things that can cause you to be fearful. And Peter would say to us right in the middle of all that, trust in Christ. I have two sons. Anybody else have children? Does, the, does, does being parent terrify you and cause you to feel not so hopeless, not so hopeful? <laughs> when my son was 26, my oldest son was 26, um, I saw on Facebook, which is the curse of the world, I saw on Facebook that he had posted something that was very disappointing to me. It wasn't how he was raised. It's not how I intended for him to be. It was posted out there on Facebook. I tried to call him five times one day and talk to him about it, and so he finally got back to me and said, did mother die? Why are you trying to call me five times? And I said, no, your mother's fine, but I saw this on Facebook, and he got real quiet. And after we talked about it for a little bit, and he was angry, he said, what are you doing? What are you doing looking on my Facebook? What are you doing snooping around my Facebook page anyway? And I said, what are you doing posting it on the World Wide Web? And that night he called me and he said, Dad, I, I think you're right. You're right. But I'm 26 years old and you're going to have to stop looking over my shoulder or we're not going to have a relationship. <sighs> Far be it from me to be a helicopter parent, hovering. I was just sad. I was sad for a couple months. He didn't call me. I didn't call him. We didn't talk. A couple months later, he called me to ask me a car question. He owned a Saab. Every Saab owner has a Saab story. <laughs> he wanted to know, because I had worked on it a lot. He wanted to know how to fix it. We talked about his car. And then we, uh, we talked about other things, and I stopped trying to run his life. And I just began to pray more. Just turned him over to Christ. Lord Jesus, here's Greg. I love him so. Can't control him. I'm so scared that something might happen and his life might be destroyed, but I love him and here he is. And I will tell you today that my relationship with him is better than it's ever been. He's 34 years old. He'll have his second son born next month. It's amazing how smart he's gotten since he had children. <laughs> he's in church this morning. He's the usher at a church in Nampa, Idaho. And I'm so proud of him. But I'll tell you what, I don't think we'd have had a relationship if I'd kept being fearful and, and, and trying to control him and make his life work out the way I wanted it to work out. I had to just trust and be hopeful and live a life of hope. We live our lives with hope. We're the people of hope. We're the people of the resurrection. And so Peter in his old age says to us, don't fear what they fear. In your heart set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. And more importantly than that, when this hope comes out of you, be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have within you. Now listen, I love what St. Francis said. He said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. We love that one. But listen, folks, words are necessary. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have within you. It doesn't have to be some canned answer, but it's an expression of why the hope of Jesus is in you. 
And let me just take a, just a parenthetical pause in the message and say, if you don't have this hope this morning, that's why we got together. If you're brand new to the congregation and this is your first time in church this morning, I would say to you, that's why we got together, to encourage you to have hope this morning before you go. That's the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection. So the last one is, when you share this hope you have within you, do, do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Isn't that interesting? Peter in his old age tells us, share this hope, but do it with gentleness and respect. One of the reasons that the church of Jesus Christ in America has been rejected by our culture is because we forgot to do that. Sometimes we've tried to ram our lifestyle down other people's throats before they ever knew about the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus was no advocate for promiscuity. Jesus was no advocate for promiscuity. Read the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the Ten Commandments, which are tough, and makes them internal, which makes it tougher. He says, don't do this behavior, but don't even have it in your heart. Well, yeah, I can control my behavior way easier than I can control my heart. Jesus makes it harder. He's no advocate for promiscuity. No one could ever say that he was. And yet, promiscuous people in his culture were drawn to him. Why? He was no advocate for promiscuity. For him, acceptance didn't mean approval, but he accepted people even when he didn't approve of them. And his acceptance of them was so powerful that in his presence, they felt such amazing love that their lives were changed. It's why the woman broke the alabaster jar and pulled, poured the ointment all over his feet. Not because he was accepting of her lifestyle but because, because, or approving of her lifestyle, but because he accepted her so absolutely. If we're going to have a word to share with the culture up and down the I-5 corridor that is mostly post-Christian, we're not, we're not really dealing with people on this, on this corridor of Western Washington who are non-Christian, that they've chosen to not be Christian. We are people who are post-Christian in a culture that no longer expresses Christian value. If, we're going, if they're going to hear the message of Jesus Christ from us, they're going to have to hear it through the lives that we live. And Peter would say, share the gospel, but do it without being obnoxious. Share it with gentleness and share it with respect. I love the story from one of our missionaries in, in, in China. There were some young people from, uh, from Tibet who had come to study in, in Beijing, and they, were, they had no access to the teachings of the Dalai Lama, who is their spiritual leader. Our missionary, who as an American could get access to the teachings of the, of the Dalai Lama, he collected the, the writings of the Dalai Lama and gave it to these students from Tibet. Well, we should fire him. We should fire him. We have an American missionary sharing with people from Tibet the teachings of the Dalai Lama. And then after he gave them the writings of the Dalai Lama, he gave them the writings of Jesus. And they went, oh, we really like these writings. But he blessed them before he tried to lead them. Does that make sense? Powerful, powerfully they said to him, we want more of these writings of Jesus. We want to hear more about this Jesus. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. That's really a powerful message for those of us living in western Washington. One last thing. I was flying into 
into, uh, I flew into Burkina Faso. We got to bed that night about uh, 11.30. I, jet lag and all, and all the travel. I had a little bit of trouble getting to sleep, so I got to sleep sometime about 12.30. At 5 o'clock in the morning, I was wide, wide, fully awake. I didn't realize it, but across the street from our little Nazarene compound, there was a mosque. And the imam got up at 5 in the morning, and, and he did the Muslim call to prayer through a, through a very crackly sound system, and the imam needed voice lessons. And I had no idea what he was saying in Arabic. But I had thought about Al-Qaeda and, and all the possible ways to be sure I was going to be safe on this trip. So when I heard someone very loudly outside the gate speaking in Arabic through a loudspeaker, I knew Al-Qaeda was coming over the wall to get me. And I was wide awake, sat straight up in bed, and I was like, what is that? What is that? And then I remembered, oh, it's the Muslim call to prayer. I had no idea what he was saying. But I thought it was such a great idea. So when I got home, it was like Thanksgiving time, and I, on Black Friday, I went to Radio Shack, and I got a, I got a little bullhorn. And so now every morning I go out, and I, and I say, Okay, all you neighbors, you heathen, get up. We're going to all pray. Don't sleep any longer. And my neighbors love it. <laughs> they love it. No, you know what? Sometimes we share our message, and the people around us have no more idea what we're saying than what I had, the, the imam who was yelling through the loudspeaker. I had no idea what he was saying. Sometimes the terms we use, the things we say that are very meaningful to us, mean nothing to the world around us. They have no idea what they're saying or what we're saying. We will have to figure out a way to live our lives with such hope, with such joy, with such presence of Jesus that our neighbors around us will say, where's that hope you have within you? Just yesterday, my neighbor four doors down, who's a 77-year-old man, his name is Lou, and both of us do woodworking, and so I always like to go down to Lou's shop because he's got way more tools than I do and talk with him about what he does. And while I was there yesterday, for the first time, he said to me, I'm having problems with my heart, Jerry. I'm having problems with my heart. He said, I've always been so strong, but I'm 77, and I'm having problems with my heart. And I said, oh, Lou, are you frightened? He said, well, I know I could keel over any time. And I said, oh, Lou, I'm, I, I would hope for you. I would hope for you peace, and I'd hope for you strength, Lou. My neighbor, Lou, doesn't know Jesus. I didn't say, well, Lou, have you heard the four spiritual laws? I didn't say to him, Lou, are you a believer? I just plowed a little bit of the field with Lou so that when I go back, I can talk to Lou more until ultimately sometime when Lou's open enough, he would maybe see the hope within me he would maybe see the joy within me, and I can share my love for Christ with my neighbor, Lou. He was walking by yesterday, and I was busy mowing the lawn, and I said, oh, there's Lou. And I just turned off the lawnmower, and I went over and stood on the street and talked with him for a while, because he's my neighbor. He's my neighbor, and I don't think he knows Jesus. He and his wife, Alice, I don't think they know Jesus. And I don't, think I'll, I don't think I'll win him to Jesus by going down there with some kind of propositional gospel that say, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Here, believe this. You'll be all right? No, I think I'm going to have to introduce the Jesus who I love to my friend Lou in a way that he can hear it. I'll have to respect him. 
I'll have to hear his story. I'll have to share the love of Jesus with gentleness and respect. Let's put the bullhorns down. Let's put our condemning, judgmental attitudes down. Let's open our hearts and let people see Jesus who dwells within us. Oh, Father, here we are. We're your people. And sometimes we're really sorry that the way that we communicate your love, we don't do it with gentleness and respect, and so people, rather than being drawn in, are pushed away. Help us to remember that the church was not to be some kind of gathering where we all got together with people that we liked, some kind of isolation place. You didn't teach us to live holy lives by isolation. You told us that the Holy Spirit would insulate our hearts and that we could live anywhere in the world and our lives wouldn't change. We can live in a world where, where the world around us isn't like us at all, and we can accept people of all kinds of people with, we, without we, we approving of what they do, just like you did, Jesus. Help our lives to be lived with such hope and such victory and such joy that people would see your love in us and be drawn into this relationship that we have with you. In Jesus' name we pray.